and my mic just came on, I think. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the uh, books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And uh, we get a little help there because uh, a couple of them are parallel, and so they function together. And I need to see if I can find my notes here. Do I have, am I up and running? I should be. Well, I'm not. <laughs> this will give you time to find First Samuel. Oh, there we go. Can I see that without my glasses? Uh, not very well. All right. I, uh, I may have to break down and do the uh, bifocal, trifocal thing because I can't see the screen in the back and my notes with the same lens. <laughs> it's a little complicated. So what we want to do this morning is we want to take a look at these uh, six historical books, but not just to gain an appreciation for what was going on in uh, the history of Israel. But we want to look particularly at the lessons that God has for us, the major themes that stand out in these books that uh, have something to say to us. Because remember, we are looking toward how the Old Testament prepares us for coming of Messiah, that it is leading up to in the story of salvation how God has uh, planned for the advent of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how in uh, due time after this period of the Gentiles, uh, he will be coming again to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as uh, we prayed just a few moments ago. So in doing this survey of the Old Testament, I want to just give you some basic uh, structure to the books we could go to the next slide. First Samuel covers for us. Yeah. First Samuel covers for us the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. So the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. Second Samuel picks up with the beginning, uh, the life and the kingdom of David. So almost all of 2 Samuel is related to David's life and reign. 2 Kings concludes uh, or picks up with the reign of Solomon and takes us to about the death of Ahab. And 2 Kings takes us to the end of the kingdom of Judah. So in these four historical books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, we begin with the end of the period of the judges and Samuel, who was one of the last of the judges and sort of a precursor of the prophets, and goes all the way through the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. I'll say more about that in a moment. But it takes us all the way to the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. And 
covers the whole history of the kingdom of Israel. Now, First and Second Chronicles actually overlay those. Um, First Chronicles is a complete introductory um, chronology that takes us up to the death of David. So when you open to First uh, Chronicles and begin to read in chapter one, you're going to get about seven or eight chapters of so and so begat so and so, and he was the father of so and so, and uh, that's going to go on like that for a while. But there's a reason for that because the the chronicler wants to trace out for us the lineage of the Davidic line uh, and connect him to Abraham and bring in all of the events that took place uh, during the Egyptian time, during the wilderness wanderings, during the uh, captivity uh, or invasion of Canaan. And then Second Chronicles picks up with the reign of Solomon and goes through the exile to the decree of Cyrus. You remember Cyrus was the one who said, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And I will give you all the materials you need to do this. And I'll give you the people you need to do this. And you, you need to go back and rebuild the temple of your God. Uh, he is one of the uh, bones that the liberals like to pick with the dating of the scriptures. Because they can't imagine that uh, they could have actually written uh, you know, a couple hundred years before Cyrus was born that uh, that Isaiah could call him by name but in fact um, God set Isaiah to to announce that Cyrus by name would be the king uh, that would allow the uh, the Israelites of Judah to return so when we look at the the history of these six books we see that the books of Chronicles are superimposed over the timeline of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And in that period of time, which is almost 400 years, 350 to 400 years of Jewish history, we have the period of the kings of Israel. And one of the interesting things about it is uh, the perspective, uh, next slide please, the perspective that we have in these two books. Sometimes you will read, if you read them together, that is Samuel Kings and Chronicles, if you read them together, they seem to be saying something a little different when actually they're not. What they're doing is they're looking at the same event from two perspectives. Samuel and Kings very much likely was the record that the kings themselves kept and that were written down in sequential order to give us the history of the kingdom of Israel and Samuel and Kings has that kingly uh, perspective, the perspective from the throne. 
Chronicles, on the other hand, is a story of Israel's spiritual nature and how it was expressed through the kingdom. And it looks at the history of the kingdom from a spiritual or priestly perspective. It's interested in how the people were relating to God. And so when we read Chronicles, we often get that perspective on an event that a king may look at one way and the chronicler may look at another way and there's actually no contradiction. It's simply a matter of the perspective that they're bringing to the story. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the timeline that goes with these kings, because uh, that's an interesting time. If we could have the next slide. Uh, In the timeline, you recall that we began the kingdom of Israel with Saul. You remember Saul? He was a handsome guy. He was a head taller than all of his peers. Uh, The tall, dark, handsome guys always seemed to come to the forefront, you know. And uh, that was kind of his profile. He stood out among everyone. He wasn't very bold uh, in the beginning, but um, he was the one whom uh, God told Samuel to anoint as the first king. And Saul had an opportunity in his life. His opportunity was to obey God and to serve Him and to follow Him, or to do his own thing. And unfortunately, Saul had a propensity to modify the directions and commands of God in every situation to suit his own desires. Uh, He persisted so much in that that he ended up with demonic problems. And we find that David enters uh, the king's court because David already had a reputation of the sweet singer of Israel. Uh, He had spent enough time out with the sheep in the fields and he had an audience of one and that was God. And uh, he was a skilled musician. And so David uh, wrote songs. We know many of his as the Psalms. And as he wrote these songs, uh, he gained a reputation, and he would be called in to the court to play for Saul uh, in hopes that he could quiet and soothe Saul's spirit, which he did. It kind of drove the demons to the background, and it brought Saul a measure of peace. Uh, However, it also became apparent after a while that David was going to be the heir to the throne. And uh, on two occasions, uh, Saul threw a spear at him, trying to kill him. Uh, And David eventually realized that as long as King Saul was alive, he was not safe in the land of Israel. And so he went out to the uh, other 
tribes around Israel and spent some time there until Saul ultimately died in battle in rebellion to the Lord. You may recall that Saul uh, asked that he be um, taken to uh, a seer, a witch, uh, a person who could uh, conjure up the dead. And uh, they said, oh, Saul, um, we're not going to be able to find anybody like that because you've driven them all off. And Saul is thinking, well, surely somebody is still out there practicing. And uh, they said, well, we know of uh, one uh, at Endor, and uh, we need you to, um, to disguise yourself so that she will not recognize you. And you can go and she might be able to, to help you and tell you how the battle's going to go and tell you what's going to happen in your life. And So Saul goes to the witch of Endor. Do you remember this story? I think, I think it's just great because uh, it's proof to me that people who do seances and conjure up the dead know they're not talking to the dead. They, they know this. Uh, they're just taking your money. Uh, they may be talking to familial spirits, but they're not talking to real people. And so uh, Saul goes in disguise. Samuel has already died and passed off the scene. And uh, he says to this witch, uh, I want to uh, talk to Samuel. I need to hear from this prophet of God. And she, she says, I don't know. And he persuades her, and she conjures up a spirit. To her utter shock, it is Samuel. Not what she was expecting. And all of a sudden, the blinders are off, and she realizes not only is that Samuel, but that's Saul. And uh, she realizes she's caught in, in this web. And Samuel says to him, tomorrow at this time, you're going to be with me. Your life is over. God has rejected you. This is your last day on earth. And ultimately, uh, Saul did in fact uh, get killed in battle. And David uh, inherited the throne as God's anointed servant. And David established a kingdom that ultimately brought peace on every side to the nation of Israel. And God made some amazing promises to David. Um, I, I'd like to point out a couple of those. Um, if you look in First Kings, or First uh, Kings chapter fifteen, verses one to six. 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. 
Now, you know by now that when the scripture says father, it could be several generations back. And so he walked in the sins of his immediate predecessor father, but not like his father, ultimately David, who was the head of the Davidic dynasty, whose heart was devoted wholly to the Lord his God. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. That is, going back to um, uh, Jeroboam. It's interesting that God says of David, by divine inspiration, that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, all the days of his life. Do you recall David making any other uh, errors or sins? Yeah, he did. Isn't it kind of God not to write them down? You know, it's a little hard to gloss over murder and, and uh, adultery that led to the murder. It's a little hard to gloss over that. And so uh, what the whole kingdom was aware of is recorded. But David did not do every single thing right. But as far as God was concerned, he did. Because God had remembered his sin no more. He had put them as far away as the east is from the west. Because David was a man who was quick to turn to God when he had failed. If you look forward to Second Chronicles chapter 7, this happens to be when Solomon uh, is devoting the temple. Second Chronicles 7, verses 16 to 21. Beginning in verse 17, Second Chronicles 7, 17. I'll give you a moment to find that. Second Chronicles seven seventeen. As for you, if you walk before me as my father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne, as I have covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. David, uh, God made a very unique promise to David. He said to him, there will never be a time in Israel or Judah that some." member of your family will not be reigning as king. I will not allow the scepter to pass from 
your family, from your dynasty, until that one comes who will reign forever with a righteous scepter. Part of the story of the, this kingly history is the fact that God prefigures in David the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and foretells that through his family line, which shall always possess the throne, that Messiah will come. And so if you look at the timeline that includes David's history, after Solomon died, Jeroboam and Rehoboam um, came into competition of the throne and the consequence was that the kingdom was divided. The northern ten tribes departed from Judah and Benjamin in the south and they began to go their own way and Jeroboam, in what might have been a logical sense, but it was definitely spiritual disaster, decided that one of the best ways to keep the people from wanting to go back to Jerusalem was if he established a place of worship in the north. And so he built idols and he built a, a place of worship that was in idolatry to God. And he began to lead the northern kingdom into idolatry. And they simply went from bad to worse. If you look at the history of the northern kingdom, there were nine different families, nine dynasties, comprising 19 kings, and every one of them was wicked and in many cases more wicked than their predecessor. And finally, God gave them over to the Assyrians in 722, 700 years before Christ, God gave them over to the Assyrians, and they were a terrible people. They were unbelievably cruel. Um, Roman crucifixion, was a gentle way to die compared to the means of torture and torment that the Assyrians practiced against their enemies. Uh, the things that they did were horrific. And it's testified to not only in Scripture, but also in some of the own... Uh, their own uh, markings and engravings that have been discovered by archaeologists. They were a terrible people. And God gave the northern kingdom, because of their idolatry, over to the Assyrians. But in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, that line stayed in the family of David. And in the grace of God even though there were wicked kings in the south, 
it seemed like every second or third one would have a heart back toward God, and a period of revival would come, and God would restore the spiritual fervency of the southern kingdom, so that they were preserved not only in David's line, but they actually lasted another 150 years or so beyond the uh, demise of the northern kingdom. They sort of hung in there. And it wasn't until 586 when the Babylonians uh, took them captive and God allowed them to go into captivity to Babylon. In essence, when they went into Babylonian captivity, that was the end of the kingly reign in the nation of Israel and Judah. That was, that was the end of it. There were a number of years that were unaccounted for. In fact, there's about 400 years between Malachi, the last of the prophets of the Old Testament, and the, and the book, uh, the Gospels, as Jesus appears on the scene. They call those the 400 silent years because no word was heard from God. Can you imagine going through a time of spiritual dryness like that? That would go all the way back to the time of the pilgrims. Can you imagine in our nation if you went back that far and no one had ever heard a word from God? In all that time, there had been no revival. There had been no fresh outpouring of the Lord. Um... They came back, and we'll talk about this in the next week or so under Ezra and Nehemiah. They came back and they rebuilt the city of uh, Jerusalem. They learned some of their lessons, but unfortunately, the remnant of the nation of Israel preserved in Judah became extremely legalistic. They were so fearful from that time forward of slipping back into idolatry, that they carried legalism to the extreme and made themselves odious in the sight of the people. As Jesus put it, you search the world over to make a single convert, speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the world over seeking to make a single convert, And when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Because they they were so persistent in cramming the laws that God never even gave them. That they themselves added uh, to the law to, to make it more stringent. So that uh, if God said, don't cross this line, they came up with... uh, 20 or 30 uh, paces back and, and all kind of rules why you couldn't get within 15 paces of the line. You know, you've heard me tell you the story about uh, you couldn't spit in the dust on the Sabbath, right? You had to spit on a rock. And the reason was if you spit in the dust, it, it caused mud to form. And mud was an ingredient in mortar, and mortar was used to lay bricks, and that was work. 
And you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, so you couldn't spit in the dust on the Sabbath. Lest it lead to making mortar and laying brick. How many of you think that would ever happen? But they made that a a rule of faith. And so through all of that period of time after the southern kingdom fell and it was kind of uh, revived in some senses that it existed in Jerusalem, it never really had a spiritual ardor or passion or real connection with God after that awful time. What are the key points? Next slide, please. What are the key points when we think about this whole history of the kings of Israel? First of all, idolatry led the northern kingdom away from God into a horrible pattern of destruction. And friends, the truth is, is that idolatry will lead us down the same road. Uh, If we give ourselves over to the service of other gods, we're going to find ourselves constantly having trouble. And that trouble is eventually going to lead to our demise, just as it did in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom... God is faithful to his promise that the scepter shall never depart from the kingdom of Judah and from David's line. There was always one of David's grandsons, great-grandsons, etc., to sit on the throne of Judah. And Judah became the focal point of the uh, Israelite history. God is a keeper of his word. And notice what we read a little bit ago, that when another wicked king rose up, God himself raised a righteous king whose heart would be toward him. Have you ever met children that have a a keen sense of spiritual sensitivity? I'm talking about young children. Almost from birth, they seem to have a heart for God. They have an interest in God. And throughout their life, they pursue Him. God has an interesting way sometimes of planting uh, a passion in the lives of people. Because we know that there's none who seeks for God on their own. But God plants in the hearts of some young ones, as He did some of the kings of Judah that they would seek his face in order that he might be faithful to his promise to David that his kingdom would last forever. And finally, David was a man after God's own heart. What is it that made David a man after God's own heart? Well, some of the things come to mind to me, if I could have the last slide, please. David loved the Lord from his childhood. He was one who, if you consider the way that he thought and meditated and the psalms that he wrote, 
David was a young man who had a deep love for God. And I think spent a lot of time with God. Out there, you know, what do you do with sheep? You can only talk so much to sheep uh, before you got to talk some someone that will talk back. <laughs> and uh, I think David spent a lot of time talking with God. He was transparent and honest before God and the people. You say, what? He had some some pretty dark moments. Yes, he did. But then when he was confronted, for example, by Nathan in the case of Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba, what did David do? As soon as he made the connection, the guilt of his heart connected with the prophecy of Nathan, and he broke before the Lord, and in essence said, O God, do not take your spirit from me. I can't live without you. I have to have you. When they brought the ark back to Jerusalem, what did David do? He took off his kingly robe and he danced before the Lord. Some people think he danced naked. I don't think he danced naked. He he has like he wore garments underneath the kingly robe, but he took off his symbol of authority and his symbol of kingship, laid it aside to become a commoner, and he danced before the Lord with all of his heart. I think David was all over the pavement. I think he was running and jumping and shouting and praising God. Uh, so much so that Micah looked out the window from the royal home and uh, his wife, and she was so disgusted and disappointed with him uh, that um, she had nothing good to say about the fool he'd made of himself in front of Israel that day. But he was willing to be a fool for God. He was willing to pay whatever the price to honor and to exalt God. David was a man who looked to the Lord, who trusted him. He said, God gives me the strength to run upon a troop. Um, how did David win the battles? How did he become such a successful man of war? You think about all the years that David went to war on behalf of Israel with the clanging and clashing of swords and arrows and shield and spears. David was never hurt. <laughs> he was a mighty warrior, a mighty victor, but he gave all the credit to God. He said, some men trust in horses and some in chariots. But my trust and hope is in the Lord, my God. I put my confidence in Him. I've made a new word up here, despitey. It's one of those typos that got by me. But despite many failures and one huge multifaceted sin, David was a deeply repentant man. You know, God's not looking for perfect people. If he were, none of us qualify. But God is looking for people who are willing to agree with him concerning their sin. 
and call a spade a spade and deal with it before the Lord. And David was that kind of person. And so God promised that the scepter would never depart from his throne and that one day a great king would arise from his line to rule righteously forever. Who are you like in these stories? Saul, always modifying the commandment a little bit to squeak your own will in. Solomon, whose success and blessing and bounty went to his head, and he became so worldly that we don't have any record of Solomon ever turning back to God in his older years. He built the tabernacle, he built the temple to the Lord. And that was a mighty moment in Second Chronicles 7 when, when the Spirit of God filled that place and God made promises to Solomon. And yet Solomon allowed the love of things and the possession of wealth and, and the love of hundreds of women to draw his attention away from God. And as a consequence, uh, he left a lineage that God had to periodically redeem because they went their own direction. What kind of person are you in this story of the kings of Israel? There weren't very many righteous ones. There were a few. Josiah was one that comes to mind. But David stands out as a man after God's own heart. I pray this morning that God will make us a people after his own heart. We're not going to be perfect. But are we quick to repent? Quick to turn back? Ready to obey? Willing to be used? Desiring to walk closely with our God. That was David's heart. And I think that's the message of, of Kings and Chronicles. To those who did, there was blessing and honor. And to those who didn't, it was tragedy and ultimate demise. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the story of Israel during this kingdom period and for the messages that it brings to us. But thank you most especially for a young man named David who was bold enough to face Goliath with confidence in you alone and never back down the rest of his life from the challenges of war a man who was quick to turn from evil and ready to obey. A man who was willing to be a fool for your sake and who loved you with all of his heart. Lord, thank you for the message. And I pray that you would put within us a desire to be like this servant of yours. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.